Hey, good afternoon, friends. Happy Monday. Welcome aboard. Rob Ridge with you. This is Afternoons on QR Calgary as we wind down the final few days of August. A lot going on this week. A lot going on today. We've got a busy show for you here this afternoon. You can reach us 403-974-TALK, 974-8255. I want to get right to our first guest off the top here. And this is an important new book. And especially, I think, from a Canadian perspective, given the, some of the many issues we've had with China. In China's belligerent foreign policy, you look back to the situation with the two Michaels and how China responded uh, to the whole situation uh, with Huawei. You look at what's happened more recently, of course, uh, you know, with, with how China's approached uh, this whole issue of foreign interference uh, when it comes to you know, Canada's uh, elections. So we, we've, we've had some issues, certainly, with uh, Beijing. And, and this is all part of a broader strategy here that's important to understand. And it's the focus uh, of a new book, which I think is both very important and very timely, like I say, and I think certainly from a, a Canadian perspective. Uh, the book is called Beijing Rules, How China Weaponized Its Economy to Confront the World. Joining us to talk more about the book, very pleased to welcome in the program here this afternoon, its author, Bethany Allen Ibrahimian. As uh, leading American journalist, a China reporter for Axios, and also, as mentioned, author of this new book, Beijing Rules. Bethany, so great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much. Uh, let's talk about, you know, the, the, the term weaponized and what we mean when we say China has weaponized its, its economy. We tend to think of economic interest and political interest as, as maybe separate, but clearly from, from Beijing's perspective, they're, they're very much intertwined. Absolutely. And I think that that exactly is one of the reasons why it's a bit we've been a bit slow in democracies picking up on how the Chinese government wields its power abroad because it 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 has worked very hard to unify uh, or to link its economic power with its authoritarian political power beyond its borders. How recent is this? And or I guess when when could we pinpoint the start of this this approach? Well, what's so interesting is that this is absolutely not a new phenomenon. It's just that the Chinese government has gotten uh, a lot more, I would say, brazen um, and comprehensive in how they have used it. And I would trace you know, maybe the earliest and uh, most. The, the earliest influential example of this, all the way back to 1997, uh, in a phenomenon we're all familiar with now, uh, which is Hollywood. So in 1997, there were two movies um, that came out of the U.S. that portrayed Tibet in a in a sympathetic light and portrayed the Chinese government as um, as a colonizer, as an aggressor in Tibet. And as a result, um, those the the studios, um, so Disney and Columbia TriStar, were blocked out of the Chinese market, the Chinese box office. And what's really amazing is how effective that was at getting all Hollywood studios to self-censor on topics about China mm-hmm. ever since. And in fact, in the past 25 years, there have not been there has not been a single major Hollywood film that has cast the Chinese government in a negative light or um, crossed any of the CCP's core interests. And that's really also astonishing because in 1997, the Chinese economy was only a quarter the size of that of the U.S. and its box office was tiny. So really, uh, you know, Beijing was able to wield this kind of, you know, censorship power merely on the promise of future wealth, not on uh, anything direct. And, And what we've seen since then, especially since Xi Jinping became the leader of China 
is um, a, a very, very clearly, concisely, consistently communicated message from Beijing that any, any company in the world that wants to have access to the Chinese market, any government in the world that wants to you know, have better trade with China must obey Beijing's rules, which are adherence to its core interests. It was, I believe, 2001 that China joined the the, uh, the WTO, and and I think there there was a hope leading up to that, and maybe a hope after that that trade liberalization would would soften uh, Beijing's approach in this regard, that that it would lead to sort of a political liberalization. Was there a miscalculation there on the part of the West? There absolutely was, but but it's also an understandable miscalculation because, you know, leading up to 2001, um, you know, it was this period of incredible optimism with you know the fall of the Berlin Wall, the fall of the Soviet Union, the failure of the failure of, of communism, and there was this narrative, you know, that that really you know became the the triumphal narrative of the 1990s, which is that the idea that market capitalism and liberal democracy are basically the same thing that if you have one you have to have the other and if you you know if you regulate your economy you also can't be democratic and vice versa Mm -hmm. so there was this assumption that if china first liberalizes its economy it will you know as a as a natural law become more um politically liberal as well but that was i mean that was just simply wrong and i think that the reason that that narrative became so sweeping and so um basically the you know the economic and political orthodoxy of our you know post uh post soviet union post cold war world was because it was a very convenient narrative for business interests. And if you look, for example, um, at Bill Clinton uh, during his presidential campaign in 1992, he was very, very focused on criticizing Beijing's human rights record as you know the butchers of, you know the butchers of Beijing, um, you know for the Tiananmen massacre. But with you know within a couple of years, within a single year of him um, becoming president, he basically listened to the lobbyists in the pro-Beijing lobby uh, in D.C., which was business interests who convinced him to de-link human rights with trade under the promise that that would eventually accomplish human rights goals. And of course, it, it did not. And just to wrap this up, I would say, why, why didn't that work? Well, if we assumed, you know, we being democratic nations assumed that, uh, you know, a market economy and political liberalism were the same thing, the Chinese Communist Party in Beijing was watching that narrative as well, as well, and they were deeply concerned about that, and they put all of their effort and all of their energy into preventing that from happening, and that's what we were most blind to. Right. I mean, you know, China's not the first country that, that you know, has, has had economic interest overlap with geopolitical interests, and you referred to what's known as economic statecraft that, that other great powers have, have made use of. But what's unique in, in this instance here as it applies to, to Beijing? Yes. I mean, so the U.S., of course, is very notorious for our ever-expanding sanctions re- regime, um, with, you know, something that we sometimes work with with our allies and partners, you know, multilateral sanctions. Here's, here's, there's, there's two main differences. Um, and first is that the U.S. and EU and sanctions, uh, you know, U.N. sanctions are multilateral. Even U.S. Sanctions that are unilateral sanctions are levied to are levied to accomplish multilateral goals. That is to say, uh, goals that the global community has agreed make the world a better place. 
such as nuclear non-proliferation, combating terrorist financing, protecting the integrity of the international financial system from uh, abuse for money laundering purposes, and to punish gross violators of human rights. Um, the Chinese government, uh, however, uses its denial and uh, granting of access to its economy purely and exclusively only for its own narrow geopolitical interests, which are often authoritarian but are always unilateral, such as shutting down criticism of its human rights record, um, preventing um, people from sharing information about the genocide in Xinjiang or criticizing its national security law in Hong Kong or using its economy to isolate Taiwan on the international stage. Um, and, and so these are not you know, to pursue multilateral interest. And a second major difference is that U.S. and U.N. sanctions are de jure. They are transparent. We know when, when they've been issued, they are issued by law and decree. You can go to the U.S. Treasury website and search it for any sanction and find out who is sanctioned and why and under what authority. But the Chinese government, when it denies access to its economy, and, and by economy, you know, as, as China's economy has become more global, we're also talking about economy beyond its borders, such as its assistance to other countries or, you know, Chinese companies' activities abroad. When the Chinese government denies access to these economic actors, it often does so in a completely opaque way that is essentially de facto. You don't really, there's, there's no website you can point to. There's no announcement. There's no there's often no mechanism. It just simply happens. You know, Norwegian salmon pile up, uh, you know, at customs, you know, at Chinese ports and it rots. Or K-pop stars are not allowed uh, to perform in China after South Korea deployed a U.S.-made uh, missile defense system. Um, or, you know, tariffs just start appearing on um, Australian exports to China, this kind of thing. And that is itself... Uh, goes against the spirit of the Western, you know, liberal rules-based world order to the extent that, that, that such an order exists because, you know, a, a key precept of the world that, you know, uh, liberal nations have tried to create is one that is ruled by law uh, and that is transparent, not one that is, uh, that is opaque. Right. I mean, you can even speak firsthand to this because, of course, as a journalist, you cover China and had previously done so in China. Uh, that all suddenly changed. I think what was it 2019 you were banned? Exactly. Yes. So I was I was hired uh, to be a Beijing correspondent for um, AFP and my journalist visa was not granted. And so I, you know, I no longer have access to China. And, you know, this concept of denial and granting of access to China. We can talk about it in economic terms, but if you want to talk about it in broader terms, for anyone who wants anything inside of China's borders, it's, it's equally effective, whether that's you know journalists not getting visas, academics not getting visas, churches such as the Catholic Church not having access to souls, if you will, if you want to speak of an economy of souls. Um, and it, you know, it really is an extremely effective measure to, to get people to self-censor, uh, or increasingly even proactively speak in support of China's uh, core interests. And this has a very powerful uh, downward effect or a pressure, uh, downward pressure on on global debates uh, about Chinese foreign policy, Chinese values, and the kind of world that the Chinese Communist Party wants to create. 
in terms of how this this influence is being pushed or these policies are being carried out, and you talk in your book about something called the United Front Work Department, and I think a lot of Canadians have, have just more recently maybe heard of this this agency or this organization, which has a very innocuous sounding name, but has a tremendous resources, tremendous influence. Like I say, there's been some revelations about some of what they've been doing to extend China's influence in Canada. But for those not familiar, what is the United Front Work Department? Sure. So the United Front Work Department is a bureau of the Chinese Communist Party. So it's not a, it's not a government office. It's a party bureau. And the the goal of the United Front Work Department is to amplify friendly voices, so voices that are friendly to the Chinese Communist Party, and to suppress dissent. And that uh, is the United Front Work Department is active both within China, but increasingly outside of China. And the UFWD, as people call it, um, has become especially active since the 1990s, uh, since Tiananmen, in um, working within overseas Chinese communities to co-opt community organizations to surveil and harass anyone who speaks critically of the Chinese government and to cultivate friends uh, and business partners, um, often by granting business opportunities inside of China. And the effect now, to be clear, the United Front Work Department also targets um, anyone, not just people of, of Chinese heritage. The effect of this um, is to reduce the freedoms, the democratic freedoms that overseas Chinese communities in democratic nations enjoy because uh, you know, we've seen, for example, that Chinese language community newspapers around the world in democratic countries end up being um, censored uh, because of these pressures. And Chinese people in communities in democratic nations find themselves being harassed or surveilled or their business opportunities being curtailed if they speak freely about the Chinese government. And this also happens to, you know, um, non-Chinese business leaders in democratic nations as well. And, you know, I write about this extensively in my book. And, you know, I've also been watching this, um, you know, political interference um, scandal unfold in in Canada. Um, Mm -hmm. And I, I think that what I write about in my book and I think that this is it's right now the, the Canadian debate about this is, is going in the right direction. The most important way to fight the United Front Work Department's work is to make its work well known and to and to make it clear that overseas Chinese communities in Canada or the United States or elsewhere are victims on both ends, one of a foreign government that will not let them be free. And on the other end, the suspicion that results from that targeting in host societies. So they have, you know, Chinese communities nowadays, um, people tend to view them sometimes with suspicion as potential agents of Beijing, whereas in reality, what they want, like what anyone wants, is to live freely in their own society. So it's it's really important to, to, to publicize this and to make, make it clear that these are valued members of society who need extra protections. So is, is the tide starting to turn at all, both in, in terms of Western countries reorienting their policies uh, towards China and also maybe to the extent that, that you know, China is reaching maybe a peak of sorts uh, of, of their influence? Um, so we've definitely seen the, the tide turn. And that really started with the with, well, you could say with the Trump administration, but I, I would actually say with Malcolm Turnbull in Australia. And, you know, he was the first. Um, leader of a of a of a country 
to say publicly that the Chinese government was involved in political interference abroad, and Australia was the first, you know, um, country to really to have a public reckoning with uh, with the way that the Chinese Communist Party was trying to interfere in their politics, and that was back in 2017, 2018. The Trump administration um, took those ideas and took those concerns and gave them maybe the world's loudest microphone, mm-hmm. um, you know, to, to make it, uh, you know, and that we saw then that the U.S. policy on China really began to become tougher and to address issues that analysts and researchers had been raising for years, but that had not gained attention. And now with the Biden administration continuing those policies, we've seen, for example, EU allies and partners look with less skepticism upon tough on China policies. And that's something that, you know, Xi Jinping and the Chinese government, um, I mean, they've really handed, you know, China hawks, as it were, huge gifts by how brazen the Chinese government has become in uh, the way that it it pushes against, back against democratic values um, around, around the world. Well, the book is called Beijing Rules, How China Weaponized Its Economy to Confront the World. Bethany, thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate this. Thank you for having me. All the best. Take care. Uh, there you go. That's uh, Bethany Allen Ibrahimian, uh, leading American journalist, a China reporter for Axios. And uh, her new book, it's called Beijing Rules, How China Weaponized Its Economy to Confront the World. Very important and timely new book. Now, this has been a bad year for wildfires, and, and we've certainly seen that over the last few weeks in both B.C. and the Northwest Territories. What's different now, as opposed to earlier this year is the social media landscape, the way in which information can be shared about what's going on. Uh, Namely, the fact that on meta platforms, Facebook and Instagram, uh, there was no longer any Canadian news being shared. And in the light of something important like this going on, it's a reminder of the challenge that poses. And so that's once again focused attention back on the Online News Act, what was C-18, because, of course, once that passed, Meta, the company that owns Facebook and Instagram, followed through on what they'd been saying all along, uh, that this doesn't work for us and we'll simply stop allowing the sharing of Canadian news on our platforms rather than basically have to pay uh, news organizations for those news links. And so it's interesting to see the reaction to all of that, especially in light of what's going on around wildfires. Look, I mean, before Facebook and Instagram existed, there are ways of keeping Canadians informed on these kinds of issues. But if we're arguing that this all does Canadians a disservice, we're kind of arguing that Meta is providing something of value or that we've lost something of value by these, uh, you know, these articles, by Canadian news not being on these platforms. And that sort of changes the whole dynamic, the underlying premise of, of the Online News Act. And meanwhile, in the midst of all of this, we've got a brand new heritage minister. Uh, For whatever reason, uh, the decision was made in the uh, recent cabinet shuffle to change that position at a rather inopportune time. Uh, The new heritage minister, Pascal Saint-Ange, addressing this last week, saying that she is still hopeful that there will be a a solution to all of this, that there apparently have been conversations with both Meta and Google. And, And basically, these are really the only two companies this is meant to apply to. Now, Google hasn't yet pulled news from from its platform but that may soon happen so the minister seeming optimistic that something will be worked out here but does she really understand what's going on here does she really understand the file 
Our next guest, who's been watching all of this very closely, uh, is concerned that maybe she doesn't fully understand how the Online News Act works. And, and that's a problem right now as we attempt to, to navigate all of this. Uh, Michael Geist, uh, professor of law at the University of Ottawa, Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law. You can read his latest at michaelgeist.cn. He joins us on the line here this afternoon. Professor Geist, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, thanks so much for having me. So as mentioned, you know, this whole wildfire situation has, you know, kind of highlighted some of the challenges we now face in, in this uh, new world of the Online News Act. But does it necessarily change any of the fundamentals of this? Now, I'm not sure that it does. You know, I think that, uh, in fact, Facebook or Meta was directly asked about exactly this issue, as you mentioned. When they were asked a committee what would happen, they would say, listen, we would not and will not block any official source information, any government information as part of that. And they haven't done that. In fact, I think they've put out information that suggests hundreds of thousands of people have sought to access information that way, uh, but that they would, in fact, uh, block, as they have said they would, block links to news sources. And, you know, that's a function of the way the legislation's been crafted, which is very broad-reaching. It's really news, not just in Canada, but news globally. And by creating a mandated payment for link situation, the company said they've adopted that approach. This isn't the first, and it won't be the last instance where I think we're going to have people wanting to potentially share that information on social media. And, you know, when you craft your legislation in the way that you have, or the way the government has, then these are some of the consequences. And they were told directly this is what it, what, what the outcome would be and seem to accept those those consequences and those risks. And now we're, in a sense, seeing it play out. Mm-hmm. So as mentioned, we've got a new heritage minister, Pascal Saint-Ange, and, and she's had to, to leap right into to all of this. Now, last week, uh, you know, she went very much, I, I guess, almost on kind of a media offensive, doing a number of interviews and talking about how the government uh, intends on, on navigating all of this. Did we learn anything new last week, first of all? Yeah, well, you're right. I mean, she did go on a bit of a media offensive, uh, speaking to a whole series of media outlets, and, and I think wanted to paint a, a story, almost a bit of a good cop, bad cop kind of scenario, where the prime minister had been the bad cop talking about how bad this was. Yeah. The headlines were how she thought there were productive meetings with Meta and Google. But once you scratched below the surface, what you found, in fact, was that Meta said that the meeting was requested not by them, but by the minister, and that they reiterated their position that they are in the process of exiting news in Canada. So, in fact, doesn't seem like much has changed there. But what I think was a bit more of a cause for concern was some of the comments she made in French media, where she talked about encouraging those companies to strike deals over the next few months so they'd be exempt from the law. The problem with that advice and that position is that it simply misunderstands the law. There, There is no such thing as an exemption from the law based on those deals. And you know, if you've got a, a, admittedly a new minister, but if you've got a, a minister who is responsible for this legislation that doesn't fully understand how it actually functions, I think that's a bit of a red flag, quite frankly, as we move ahead with new regulations that could be coming as soon as this week. Right. And that's a key difference because apparently, and you know, we, we often hear about this situation in Australia and that's held up as, you know, kind of the, the basis for what Canada has done. But there's some key differences when it comes to this exemption question. There are. And, and, that, and this is a big one where in Australia, the government reserved the right to exclude companies if, you know, based on essentially negotiations directly with the government uh, over what their what deals might look like. And so in the case of both Meta and Google, they did negotiate that after, as many will know, Google uh, Meta took the step of blocking 
news links there for a relatively short period of time. Canada now found itself finding those links blocked for far longer because it's pretty clear they're not bluffing here. But in any event, in Australia, that law did give the ability to exempt the company from from the legislation itself. And so, in fact, the code that that legislation establishes in Australia has never been applied to anyone because they're exempted. That's not the case here. And the case here is that if you are a company like a Meta or a Google and you link to news, you you facilitate access to news content, you are subject to the law, full Mm -hmm. stop. And yes, you can enter into agreements, and there are some implications for that if the agreements are approved by the regulator and you can thereby avoid final offer arbitration. But it doesn't exempt you from the law, and there are all series of obligations that come with the law, uh, even if you've reached these agreements. And the minister's frankly just wrong when she suggests that somehow there's an exemption that might be applied if there are agreements in place. And by regulator, that, that's the CRTC here. It is. It's yeah. the CRTC. And I mean, it's interesting to raise the CRTC in this context because it appears the government and the CRTC um, really are, are, are moving at, at, a diff- at different paces at a minimum. Yeah. The CRTC just last week put out their timeline for all of this, and they're talking about 2025 as a, a timeline to get all of this up and running. They're going to launch a consultation in the fall. And so even when the minister says, you know, we want you to negotiate with media companies, the CRTC has to approve media companies, so-called eligible news businesses. That may not happen for a year or a year and a half. And, you know, there's some that will obviously qualify. So in theory, you could negotiate with them. But uh, the notion that they haven't even fully set up the process, that the CRTC itself says that mandatory bargaining won't start until potentially 2025, highlights that, that we've got really both the regulator and the government moving certainly at at different speeds on this issue. Well, and and what does it mean for the prospect of of anything changing anytime soon? I I think we have a demonstrably worse status quo at the moment where there's there's no new revenue sources for Canadian media organizations, but there's certainly a lot less access to Canadian news. And and is that now the status quo that we're stuck with for the at least, you know, the months ahead? I think it is. You know, it's a mess. You know, I think the government basically made a bet that this was all just a bluff and that they could push ahead. And I think we're all seeing that that's, in fact, not the case. And the costs are significant. The costs, as you said off the top, are significant for individuals who use social media, for Canadians using social media and they've been accustomed to sharing news and aren't able to do so. Um, it's a, definitely a hit for the platforms because I don't think anybody would dispute they're not as good if they were if they are stopping linking to certain kinds of content, uh, but most of all, it's it's a it's a terrible look for the government, and it's really bad for Canadian media. They are losing traffic. I've had conversations with some media outlets that talk about their traffic dropping ninety percent or more for certain kinds of content where they really lived on social media. So uh, that's a that's a big revenue loss. It's a loss of impact that t- that takes place, and it's one I think disturbingly that was foreseeable. And now we find we've got a new minister in charge that may not fully even understand the implications of how the law actually is designed to work. Well, it doesn't bode well, but we'll see where it all goes from here. Much more is mentioned, michaelgeist.ca. Uh, Professor Geist, thanks again for joining us here. Appreciate the update. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks all the best. Take care. Uh, that's Michael Geist, professor of law, University of Ottawa, Canada Research Chair, Internet and E-Commerce Law, and someone who's been following all of this very closely, of course, offered his own expert uh, testimony before the uh, Senate committee that was examining uh, C-18, which became the Online News Act. So this is the situation we're stuck in. 
And further compounding the problem now is the involvement of the CRTC as a regulator in all of this and in the timeline here that the CRTC seems to be operating under. So as Michael Geis points out, so there, there would still theoretically be the opportunity then for Google or Meta to say, okay, fine, we'll, we'll play along and we'll start negotiating with, with news organizations. But with whom would they be negotiating? Because for this to work properly under the law, uh, news organizations need to basically be approved. <laughs> and who does that? Well, that's the CRTC. So the CRTC first has to, to approve who's eligible under this legislation to negotiate with Meta and Google. And, of course, they're the ones who uh, approve or, or reject those deals if and when they are struck. So the CRTC is talking about a timeline of 2025 for implementing all of this. And the government seems to be suggesting that there's some urgency in, in doing all of this. So it, like Michael Guy said, it, it's a huge mess. Regardless of what you think about the premise of all of this, uh, what we have right now is a big mess. And unfortunately, maybe then a heritage ministry doesn't fully understand the government's own legislation here. Hey, good afternoon. Happy Monday. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here. A final few days of August. Uh, earlier this month, uh, the federal government confirmed that food packaging, plastic food packaging, is the next target in its crusade against reducing overall waste from plastic. I'm not sure who exactly at this point is, is either A, excited about this or B, convinced that it's going to do a whole lot. The first phase was the single-use plastics ban. Would anybody say that that has gone well or that that's made a positive difference? I think it's been frustrating. It's been annoying. I don't know that we can see any, any kind of real environmental uh, impact in a positive sense. And it's also been really illogical. You know, the, the whole experience with um, the, the bags in Calgary, the Calgary co-op stores that are compostable in the green bins. And, and yet still the single-use plastics ban applies there. So it's, it's illogical on top of everything else. But the next phase is going to be much bigger and could have much bigger consequences when it comes to food packaging. There's a reason why uh, food is packaged the way it is. It's about keeping it safe. It's about making sure it can last longer. So what's going to replace that? What are the costs of moving to alternatives? And what are maybe the unintended consequences on the environmental side? of making that switch as the government remains very narrowly focused on plastic. Our next guest says we should be paying attention to both of these questions. The cost side, yes, there's going to be a cost. That's more obvious. But when it comes to the environment, that there doesn't appear to be a payoff either here. In fact, there could actually be negative environmental consequences from going down this path. Uh, you can read his latest at uh, financialpost.com. David Clement is a North American Affairs Manager for the Consumer Choice Center and joins us on the line here this afternoon. David, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me back. Like I say, I think the single-use plastic ban has been uh, somewhat awkwardly implemented. Maybe that, that's that's being charitable. But uh, as we look to, you know, the uh, whole issue of plastic food packaging, it seems like th this is a, at a whole other level. What's your concern here, first of all, in terms of where this is all headed? So my concern is that if we go down the route of 
a ban or curbing the, the use of plastics in, ter in terms of food packaging. We go from a policy with the single-use plastics ban, which is not great for the environment and incredibly irritating, to a path that is a huge net negative for the environment and a huge net negative for food affordability and product variety. Because the way in which a lot of foods are packaged today are done so in plastic because that keeps food fresher longer and right. keeps them intact. And so my concern is, which I'm sure we'll get to, is uh, from an environmental standpoint, it's a net negative for the environment to go this route on food packaging. But beyond that, it's also a really uncomfortable time to be implementing measures that could have a, a pretty disastrous in, impact on food prices when we're grappling with food inflation remaining persistently high despite inflation coming down in other categories. And so uh, it couldn't be. A, it couldn't come at a worse time, um, from my perspective. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and you know, we'll unpack that a little bit further. But you know, I mean, it sort of begs the question, I guess, of what the point of all of this is. Like, what the government's trying to achieve here. If it's very narrowly about reducing the amount of plastic we use, then then I guess maybe that it'll have that that effect. But I don't know what that actually achieves. What's your understanding of you know what the point of this all is? Well, it would appear that the point is a, a zero plastic waste future, which if all you care about is eliminating or limiting plastic waste, and that's the only priority you have, I can see why you would be in support of this policy. But if you care about the environment and you care about the, the total impact uh, a policy has on the environment, this is a, this is a step in the wrong Direction, And I say that because, uh, for example, one of the examples I used in my piece in the Financial Post is the difference between baby food being packaged in plastic jars versus glass containers. Right. And researchers in Switzerland found that the plastic containers were 33% uh, had 33% fewer emissions than baby food packaged in glass. And that's mostly because plastic is lighter and they have lower transportation costs, which obviously means you burn less fuel getting them from point A to point B. And so if we take that and you apply it across basically anything that needs an airtight seal, uh, you run into some uncomfortable or inconvenient truths about the alternatives to what we're using now. Right. And so that that's a key issue. I mean, we could call this unintended consequences, but, you know, certainly the government, I think, needs to understand that if it's not plastic, then what? And, you know, for perishable food, as you mentioned, baby food is an obvious example. If it's not plastic, then it's then it's glass. And what's the impact of that? Uh, so I, I don't know if we should call this unintended consequences, because certainly we need to understand that, you know, this is all going to have some consequences that, that you know, industry is going to have to look for alternatives maybe this hasn't been well thought out is, is that part of the issue here to be honest I, I i wish i could say that it's it's ignorance at this point um i think it's just a government looking for symbolic wins yeah. because not a lot of people 
evaluate policies and read in this way and read through the life cycle analysis of uh, different packaging uh, alternatives, they just see, oh, okay, less plastic waste, that must be good. Right. And my, my point in, 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 the, in the article I recently published was to highlight that as soon as you start to scratch beneath the surface, you really see this as nothing more than that symbolism. And now, it, this is where it gets worse. It's not just irritating symbolism or ironic or hypocritical. I mean, everyone, if you've gotten a, a Starbucks drink, it's in a pretty heavy-duty plastic cup. You're not saving the environment because your straw is now made of paper. I think most people realize that the first time a paper straw disintegrates on them. Yeah. Uh, that's, irri that's irritating. People, people get bothered by it. But it's that is to a, it's not to the same degree um, in terms of being problematic as this one is because if you start to package these good these food items in other pack other packaging that's heavier like glass well that's a huge net loss for the environment or if you try to use less of it and then increase the rate in which food goes bad or spoils. That is also a huge net negative for the environment because every time you have food that spoils because it, it could no longer be properly sealed or packaged, um, what does that mean? Well, that means that you have to go through the entire production cycle again, right. which is, let's say, for beef, which can be considered a high, relatively high-carbon food item. You're then talking about additional cuts of meat being repackaged, reshipped, trucked, put on grocery shelves, kept refrigerated. All of those things uh, or steps along the supply chain have emissions, and you're having to run the whole process again. And so uh, when, when researchers have looked at this, they've, they've basically come to the conclusion and said, when it comes to the environment and climate, keeping food in the pack that's in the packaging uh, together and as fresh as long as possible is a far better outcome for the environment than trying to limit plastic arbitrarily and then increasing the spoilage rate for food because you're, you're just going to have spillover externalities of increased emissions by having to order more food and increasing that demand for food and then factor in high food inflation uh, and having more, fo more food go to waste. And it really is, uh, it feels like a double-edged sword here where, where either way um, consumers are, uh, are not coming out of this situation um, with anything positive to, to report home. Well, that's the thing. And as you say, we're kind of getting the worst of both worlds here. Maybe if there was an yeah. environmental upside, Canadians could try to convince themselves that the added costs would be worth it. But as you alluded to, maybe we don't have that upside, but we definitely have added costs here. And these costs could, could potentially be significant. Yeah, and, and we know that they're significant because in the first plastic ban, the government required itself to report on what the cost differences were. Uh, in looking at, let's say, between plastic cutlery um, and, and wood cutlery. And the wood alternatives were anywhere from like two to three and a half times more expensive. And yeah, that might not sound that, that drastic in terms of the cutlery you get for takeout, 
But if you apply that to the packaging for everything that's delivered to a grocery store in, uh, in, in plastic containers or in plastic wrap or sealed in plastic like meat products, that's a considerable increase in prices added on top of the fact that the last inflation numbers had us uh, with a food inflation rate of, of 8.5%. Uh, and so do we really want to add fuel to that fire right now with a policy that's not a win for the environment? It really is just that empty symbolism. Well, it's in the early stages, but something worth keeping a close eye on. Your latest is mentioned. It's up at financialpost.com. Much more at consumerchoicecenter.org. David, thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate this. Thank you very much, Rob. Always a pleasure. Likewise. There you go, David Clement, uh, North American Affairs Manager with the Consumer Choice Center. Uh, so his latest at the Financial Post, uh, the headline, Banning Plastic Food Packaging, would be a second big plastics mistake. The government didn't exactly get it right the first time around. There's a potential that this can really go sideways. I think he raises some important points. Like, first of all, what's going to replace plastic? So he mentioned uh, the uh, study that was published in the journal Environmental Science and Technology. Researchers in Switzerland looking at baby food containers. They concluded that using plastic rather than glass reduced emissions by up to 33%, due in part to its lighter weight and lower transportation costs. Okay, so there's an obvious environmental benefit to not banning plastic. So what's the reason why we would do that? What's the reason we would prefer glass to plastic in that context? Uh, the other point is on the, you know, the food waste. As he points out, food production generates emissions. Eliminating food packaging increases the volume of food that spoils, which means more needs to be produced, transported, refrigerated, and put on grocery store shelves all of which generates additional emissions. So there's another environmental downside. Now, it's interesting because as much as this government is focused on climate change, the arguments around these plastics bans aren't necessarily about climate change. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.